My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. This is episode number 100 of the podcast. Thank you all for joining me on this incredible milestone. My goal for this episode is to indicate where I intend to take the Renaissance of Men and where I pray we're being guided on our own. My guest this week is an attorney, MIT graduate, former Marine officer, author, and translator of the classic work of philosophy, Cicero's On Duties. His name is George Thomas, but you may know him better as Quintus Curtius. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, You'll know that in a recent episode, I said that I'd be shortening my intros going forward with occasional exceptions. This is one such exception. New listeners anxious to hear from Quintus Curtius, I hope that you'll indulge me with a few minutes of your time, because it will help explain why, for the 100th episode of my weekly Labor of Love, I chose him as the guest. I've devoted 20 years of my life to studying what it means to be a man, gaining understanding with not just my mind, but my heart body, and spirit as well, traveling to more than 30 countries along the way. During that time, I discovered that I wasn't the only man thinking about this question. In fact, I found that there's a giant global conversation amongst men trying to understand it too. That conversation, all 40 years and counting of it, I call the Renaissance of Men. I didn't start the Renaissance of Men, not in that sense anyway. I only observed it and gave it a name. I've studied, and I think I understand, its causes, origins, and phases. And what began as a conversation in private, in forest gatherings, then forums, conferences, and online communities, has since burst into the public awareness sometime around 2017 with the arrival of two figures who, for better or worse, brought about a sea change in our discussion about men, President Donald Trump and Dr. Jordan Peterson. Since then, more media figures and talk shows than I can count have asked, what does it mean to be a man? Partially because feminism shrieks we don't need men, but also partially because the idols and icons presented to us in public don't quite seem to do it. They're afflicted with flaws of character, either that they're blind to, wear proudly, or that eventually take them down. In that, they're not unlike any other man. But the difference is that these men are performing on the largest world stages where tiny details like words and facial expressions are magnified and distorted through digital lenses thousands of times. Millions of dollars are at stake, as well as public adoration and men trying to establish a legacy that they hope might yield more than a footnote in the annals of history. All this is fine, except the men who participate in this are stepping in to fill a role. They're not just media figures. They're avatars stand-ins for something greater than themselves. For what, you might ask? Fathers. In the first half of the 20th century, 35 million 
able-bodied, actual, and potential fathers were destroyed on the battlefields of two world wars. That catastrophe has resonated forward through the decades in different ways into the collapsed hearts, minds, souls, and bodies of men today because so much of masculinity was lost. So much. So now, in this hypermediated age, men step forward in front of flashbulbs, microphones, and cameras, and our father-hungry hearts as men and women hear the confident voice, watch the determined posture, see his upraised eyes and outstretched arms, and say, Dad? Men and women then pour millions and millions of dollars down the mountain towards them, hoping for a look, a moment of connection, a validation, a mere drop of what's been lost. But they are unworthy successors. Yes, all of them. No man whose book you read, whose program you buy, whose club you're in, or even whose podcast you listen to, yes, including me, can replace the image left in your heart of your absent, abusive, or distant father. And yet we try, imitating this man or that man, like ducklings imprinting onto the nearest living thing they see, seeking to model after them, embodying something that walks and talks like a man. Women do the same in their own way. It is natural. It is good. It is a righteous and true instinct, and it is mercilessly exploited. After having observed this trend for too long, I say enough. What we are looking for as men isn't on a screen. It won't disappear if the power goes out. No one owns it, and no one can give it to you, nor can it be taken, because what we seek is already part of us, part of our blood and bones, muscle fibers and sinew. It is our inheritance and our Y chromosome, which is to say our godly design. For two years now, if you've listened to this podcast, you've heard the man with the deep voice say words I wrote in September 2020, in tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time. Tribes around the world refers to the communities of men who have carried on the conversation of the Renaissance for four decades now and who show no signs of stopping. The best of masculinity from all of time refers to the transcendent aspects of manhood that can never be banished from the earth so long as one last man draws breath. That's right. Their dirty secret is that they have to get rid of all of us and commit an unprecedented crime of gendercide. And thankfully, they've long lost that battle already. So now it falls to us as men to rediscover the best of masculinity from all of time, with emphasis on all of time, not since 2022 with a killer video on YouTube or TikTok, or 2015 when your favorite content creator wrote a book, 2002 with a training seminar, or even 1991 with a weekend men's initiation. I'm thinking further back, not decades or centuries, but millennia to Jerusalem and to ancient Rome and Greece, and more than just their marble statues, too. Those civilizations are what inspired the Italian Renaissance, and they're what inspired me when I started and named the Renaissance of Men. They're the foundations of the West, rooted in the great men who thought, fought, and wrote to carve civilizational order out of nature's chaos. Because they were men, imperfect men to be sure, but men who understood the value of brawn plus brains heart plus spirit, action plus thought, strength plus virtue. The magic thing I believe we all seek in the videos we watch, books we read, creators we follow, and decisions we make. And so there's no confusion. 
Virtue is from the Latin word virtus, meaning valor, merit, and moral perfection. In other words, the best of masculinity from all of time. Which brings me, at last, to my guest this week. His name is George Thomas, but of course you know him better as Quintus Curtius, an MIT graduate, former Marine officer, criminal defense attorney, author, and translator of the essential work of philosophy, On Duties, by the pre-Christian Roman philosopher Cicero. Cicero wrote On Duties to his son, passing along fatherly wisdom to aid the boy in his education. And it just so happened that the father was one of the wisest men of his age, or any age for that matter. And in that bond, we see reflected what's missing from our current era and so many prior. That singular, signature experience in a boy's life when his father says, Son, this is what I know. Now, the expectation is not that we nor our fathers need be Cicero, because whether our father is a philosopher or shopkeeper, janitor or jurist doctor, it's that connection from one generation to the next that has been shattered by generations of kinetic, cultural, and now political war. And the gift that Quintus Curtius has given all of us as men and women is to reach back across more than 2,000 years, just before the Christian era, to find a snapshot of a moment between father and son that I think many of us today are longing for. Then QC, as he's known, brought that moment forward in time to us, rendering his translation in modern, readable English that demonstrates Cicero's brilliance and character and, for a moment, the loving heart of a father. I am tired of men play-acting at masculinity, being boisterous, brash, or bullies. Yes, it makes them big bucks, but it nourishes our societal father hunger like processed food and seed oils, just enough to keep us coming back for more. But men need meat. Quintus Curtius has served it up to us, and as you'll hear, his own breadth of wisdom and experience, passion for, and commitment to truth made him a man capable of time-traveling on behalf of all of us to ancient Rome and back. The only question is, will we put the three-pound muscle between our ears not to mention the 10-ounce muscle within our chest, to work and digest what he's put down. I encourage every man and woman listening to head over to Amazon right now, pick up his translation of On Duties, and begin to try. It's time. In our conversation, George and I discussed his own background and life path, the origin and structure of On Duties, philosophy and time travel, the value of men's anger, men's obligation to pursue virtue, religion versus philosophy, what is morally good versus what is expedient, and finally, an appreciation of fine firearms. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Please share this episode with a friend. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Ren of Men, and visit renofmen.com mentorship to learn more about my 12-week mentorship program. On this auspicious occasion, please stick around after the interview for a discussion of the future of this podcast and where I hope to take us all together. And please welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast for my 100th episode, the translator of Cicero's immortal On Duties and himself a man for all seasons, Quintus Curtius. Hey, George, thanks for joining me on the podcast, or Mr. Quintus Curtius, sir. Thanks for having me, Will. It's a real pleasure to be here. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. As I think I mentioned our initial um, chat, this is the 100th episode of my podcast. 
And wow. I, I, I put a lot of thought into who I wanted to talk to for this conversation because it's an important milestone for me. And I, I immediately thought of you and your work and your books and your general approach and philosophy to life and your philosophy, your approach to philosophy as well. And uh, because I think you embody and promote so many values that I think men need to hear about. So I've been very much looking forward to this and I'm very grateful for you, uh, you taking the time to chat with me today. Well, thank you. Thank you, Will. It's my, it's, honestly, it's my pleasure to be here and I really do appreciate your uh, reflective and, and thoughtful tone and I'll, I'll do everything I can to make this a, a useful podcast experience uh, for, for your, your listeners. I think uh, I don't think that'll be a problem at all. So, um, all right. so I wanted to start and and just give the listeners a, a bit of the sense of your background because I know that you're a former Marine officer. You're an attorney. You write about travels and and uh, so many wonderful worldly things. You're a translator of philosophy. I think you're you speak many languages as far as I can tell. And help thread these pieces together for what brings you sort of here to this moment in your life now. And then we'll launch into some of your work. Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, when I was younger, you always have this perception that you can plan out your life and there's this this predictable trajectory that's as defined and, and uh, able to be calculated, just like a, um, a shell fired from a cannon. And it's really not that way. Um, you know, I... I um, I graduated from MIT in 1990, and I was uh, an ROTC student at that time. So I had uh, a commitment of of uh, four years. I was a a Marine officer. I uh, was in, in the Navy ROTC with a Marine option. So I I had gone to OCS. I went to the basic school, and um, I was uh, you know on active duty for you know a little over four years, about four and a half years. Then I got out. And, uh, you know, I, uh, needed to get a profession, needed to be able to, to do something with my life to earn a living. So I, I went to law school, uh, in the Kansas city area and, you know, I've been, I've been practicing law, uh, really since 2000, you know, I, um, I, I got out, I graduated from law school in 1998 and uh, I did, uh, you know, a little bit of time as a prosecutor in a small Missouri County. And then I, started a firm with a, a friend of mine from uh, law school and we've just been here doing bankruptcy and, and criminal defense uh since since 2000 so yeah it's it's been almost 23 years now yeah so um and yeah I, the things i write about i had always been interested in i'd always been interested in history in philosophy and literature uh i'd had the opportunity to travel all through my life uh you know i did have a lot of exposure to different languages so um Somehow, you know, just around the year, uh, you know, 2012, I just kind of, I, I'd never written before in a systematic way, but somehow I just uh, started, uh, I guess I just felt the necessity, maybe just the time in my life. Um, I felt this compulsion. I felt like there were things that were inside me that were, that needed to be said and, and wanted to get out. And uh, just one thing just led to another, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to explain. I, even now, I'm not really sure how it all happened. It just kind of happened, man. You know, mm -hmm. and I felt like um, I felt like nobody was writing about the kind of things I would have wanted to read, and I felt like no one was writing in the way that I wanted to to to, to write to see written on the page. 
So I just said to myself, you know, I, I, I can do this. Um, and since, uh, I feel like this is something I can do and that no one else is doing it, I, I better step up to the plate and just start doing it. And it really is, it's, it's, um, I know it sounds, cause everyone thinks, you know, you plan these things out and everything kind of, you know, you, you, and may, maybe some people's lives are that way, but, um, I'm 54 years old. I just turned 54 a few months back and uh, uh, I'm old enough to know that you can, you can plan some things in life, but others take on a a life of their own. You know, maybe, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, you know, I've, (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) My life has not at all progressed in the direction that I thought I would. And it it would, in fact, it's, it's gone much better than I could have planned for myself. I just had to endure the ambiguity. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. Not everyone can say that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's uh, a product of a, a lot of hard work and a lot of faith and, and, I, and uh, a lot of blessings as well, for sure. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, so as you moved into writing, what, which one was your, was your first book? You also have a blog with many wonderful articles on it, a podcast as well. Yeah. Yeah. I first, uh, the, the first book that I uh, published um, was, called, was in uh, 2000. Uh, 14 actually 2014 and that was called 37 they were 37 mm-hmm. separate essays those were essays that that had appeared right that's that's right and those were essays yeah. that that had appeared the year be- most of them not all of them but most of them were essays that had appeared before um you know uh, that i had contributed to a larger website um that's no longer in existence now uh because i felt like there was no other platform really for, for young men, I felt like there was no other real way to get your voice out. And, you know, when you're starting out as a writer, you know, you don't really know exactly how to do things. You don't have a roadmap. You kind of just experiment. You, 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 you put out some essays, you see what the reception is and you see what people think. And, and based on that, you continue. And, and the reception was very positive. So I felt like, okay, you know, I can do this. And I felt there are like-minded men out there, like-minded individuals. You know, maybe it's not just men. There are a lot of women. I, I would say, you'd be surprised. I would say probably a good half of my readers are, 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 are women, maybe even more. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, they tend to be very intellectually, curi- intellectually curious. Um, I think they have all the same needs that men do in some ways in terms of examples, role models, ideas. Uh, so we all should be, you know, benefiting from each other. And I don't, I don't see myself as, as targeting one audience in, a, in a, you know, specifically, uh, but just, mm-hmm. I guess, just by nature of, you know, maybe the subject matter, um, maybe, maybe they, it just by default, it, it <laughs> tends to attract men, which is fine. It doesn't, you know, it's, you know, whatever. Sure. Um, so anyway, so once 37 came out, you know, I, I, um, and then the year after that, I put out another collection of essays called Pantheon. And then again, the idea came to me to start, you know, tra- doing original translations of some of these classics that I had always felt were very important. Again, because I felt like the existing translations were not adequate; they were not up to uh, the level where a modern reader could just pick them up and just kind of. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the material is not. It's not. It's not like reading a pulp novel. I mean, you've got to, you have some minimal effort needs to go into it. But these books are not inherently uh, technical or, or arcane or complicated. They've been made out to be by some people 
who don't really want or for whatever mentality reason or habit reason, they don't really know how to uh, make this material accessible to a modern audience. But I felt like there, there was a real need to, um, to uh, particularly Cicero, to, to put him in an idiom that was modern, that was understandable, but at the same time was, is accurate, scrupulously accurate to the original text. And that, that, that's important to me because I don't believe in sort of this um, free range translating, sort of doing your own. It, it's got to be, it's got to be precise. It's got to be scholarly rigorous. It's got to, it's, it has to have, uh, I think, annotated uh, footnotes to explain because a lot, as, as you know, from just from on duties, there's a lot of things in these books that, you know, yeah. names of, names of people, names of places, will names of uh, you know battles and uh, philosophers that are not familiar to the to the to the modern reader mm-hmm. um and you know you've got to help you've got to put that in a in a note somehow a footnote and explain these things because otherwise you're just going to alienate people so um yes that's kind of how that started and and um you know on duties was a was a a, a real success I, mean, I was i was shocked at how i never expected the response level i mean it just exploded mm-hmm. uh, to the point now where a lot of um you know on duties and also on on um or, or say tusculan disputations and uh on moral ends i mean these are being used in in schools now i've i've heard yeah. i get i get emails from readers and teachers who actually use them as in both in uh instruction at home for you know self uh uh, homeschooling and also in classroom settings because there's they are designed really for the you know they're 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 meant to be, not meant to be but they're designed for the they're not they're not written for specialists um yes. the specialists already have their own uh you know way of doing things but the, these these translations were really designed for what the original author intended they were designed for the general reader Cicero was not writing for other philosophers. He was not writing yeah. for uh, technic. He was writing for the average Roman, and that's been my, I think, focus is to try to carry out his his original intentions. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the thing that stood out to me most as I started really getting into the book, because my experience of reading philosophy is that the translations are very dense very hard. You have to think very hard to work your way through it. And as I started reading On Duties, I found myself really enjoying the process of reading it. Like It invited me into the text, and I felt like I could understand Cicero's character, his heart, the message that he was trying to bring across to his son. And I, I can't think of a book of philosophy, not that I've read that many of them, but I can't think of a book of philosophy that I, that I enjoyed reading so much and that gave me such a powerful experience of the process, you might say, of philosophy itself. Like I really, wow. I, I really genuinely enjoyed reading it and found I'm myself really wanting happy, to man, read it. So uh, just to just to hear you say that, really, um, it really, I really appreciate your saying that because, you know, uh, when you're toiling away night after night with these, yeah. uh, and I'm not trying to gain sympathy or anything, but. When you when you put your heart and soul into these, when it, when it's truly based on love, and I truly do love these books because I do think that they're redemptive. They they help just like in the same way that you found them redeeming, and and they restored your confidence in 
I, I think, philosophical uh, books. I, I had exactly the same way, and I wanted to transmit that to other people. And um, you're right. I, I, I don't know why, you know, with most of these books, the most, besides mine, the most recent translation is like 100 years old. And they're mm. just done in, the, in this Victorian English that's very stilted, that's very uh, tortuously complicated. Um, you have to, it's not enough just to literally translate word. You have to also, you know, sometimes extremely long sentences need to be broken into parts so that they can be more readily digestible. Um, and, and once you, you go through that, and I, and I think that's where the value of the translation lies is, is, is the fact that it, you have a final product that is accurate, but at the same time is, um, is, is not, uh, 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 just a t- horrible experience. I mean, I, I've had the same, I've tried to read, I've tried to read some of these German philosophers and, and even some of the modern, <laughs> yeah. well, you, it's just impossible, Will. You just can't get through it. it you, finally, you, you just give up and it's got nothing to do with intelligence. I think it's just because um, for whatever reason, the translators don't see it as their job to be comprehensible. Whereas I see that's an obligation. If you expect people to go through the trouble of reading your book, you you darn well better make it in a form that is uh, that's readable and digestible. And I think what sets on duties apart, maybe from some of the work of the German philosophers, is it's Cicero writing to his son, and yeah. so he's not going to write his younger son, his, his young son, who's under the the tutelage of another another philosopher. And it's and it's a gift. In fact, the closing lines of the book. I mean, I can I can read them in a minute. But the closing lines of the book, like it would bless me if you, uh, it would bless me if you read this. But it bless me even more if you incorporated these principles into your life. So as he's writing, producing this gift for his son, naturally he's going to write it in a way that his son can read, as opposed to yeah. some obscure method that his son's going to have to crack to understand. It's a very different approach than like Kant or whatever. And there's a real, that's right. And there's a real heartfelt sincerity that comes through also. I think you, you can probably detect that. That's one yeah. thing I've noticed. And I'm, I've translated uh, of Cicero's works as, well, the first Stoic Paradoxes was the first. That's a very short work. But Stoic On Duties, On Moral Ends, and Tusculan I'm, I'm working on a, a fifth right now, which is The Nature of the Guy. Well, uh, that's going to come out later this year. But you get a real feel for the personality of your your subject. And uh, there's a real passion that comes through. His, his interest in philosophy is sincere. Um, he has, he does have certain personality traits. He likes to, there are times when he can be very carping and very yeah. um, mocking and sarcastic, but that to me, that kind of <laughs> adds to the endearing value of Cicero. So, I mean, some of it is, sc- is scalding. Some of it is very mocking yeah. just, and it, it's, 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 um, it's amusing. I mean, some people were turned. I've been. You read that there are some readers that have been turned off by that. Like historically, I think, I think, um, I think it was uh, who was it? Uh, uh, Montaigne uh, was not a fan of Cicero, and I think, um, I can't remember who else. But there, 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 he, he, there are some critics out there. They find him kind of overly obsessed with definitions and terminology and. Uh, but then again, you know, some of the greatest minds, some of the noblest and, and greatest minds uh, have uh, found him to be a source, a wellspring of real moral 
clarity. I mean, St. Augustine literally worshipped worshipped him. And mm-hmm. I think uh, it's very clear the early church fathers, now, I, know, I know this now, I'd always heard this, but I know it. They basically adopted every sentence. I mean, you know, maybe yeah, you they, see it. they substituted, you know, they, they put on a patina of, um, I think, in many ways, Christian theology, but he, he's so He's so good that they could not let him go. He he was too good yeah. to pass over. He was mm-hmm. just too good. And in many ways, you you um, especially now as I'm going through on the nature of the gods, there it's 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 essentially there's no doubt in my mind that he believes in a a universal creative principle in the universe. He just doesn't give it a specific name. It's it's there. Mm-hmm. All the ingredients are there, but. Um, you know, it's it's just uh, all these personality traits come through, and, and the sincerity comes through, the passion comes through, and and you know, with on duties, will it, it it has real world applicability as a lawyer. Yes. You're going to find. I mean, it's really about conflicts. It's about how to reconcile conflicts. If you've got, and you're going to find yourself in these every day. I find myself in them every day. When you have a situation where there's a a conflict between what's advantageous and what's morally correct. How do you reconcile? You know, you're right, and and you know, everyone says, "Oh, well, that's common sense." It's come. Well, no, it really, it's it's not common sense. It's not no. because you have to you have to be told these things. It has to be discussed. There's examples in on duties. You know, like you know, buying houses. You know, when you're buying yeah. contracts for purchasing houses, uh, commercial contracts with grains being shipped to roads, and I mean, these are these are this is a real attempt to to bring philosophy down from the clouds. And to make it applicable to our daily lives, and I see it all the time when I deal with clients. You know, okay, well, we can go this route, and this can be the quick and easy way, or we can take this route, which is the, maybe a little bit harder, but ultimately it's going to be the better way. And you know what? It's never failed me. Ultimately, it seems to be that every time you try to wing it, to shortcut it, to to pick the easy way, it always comes back to bite you. It always does. And, you know, if we could just tell these younger guys, these younger people this, and and if they could see it, and some sometimes you have to just learn it on your own, no matter how many times we say it. Um, I think you're a father, right? So you, you're a... I'm are, not. Are you, are you, you're not? Okay, I thought you said you were. Okay, no. well, I'm not either. But... Um, if you're either a father or you have students, you can tell people things up to a point, but they have to only by experiencing experiencing it for themselves are they really going to learn it. But we have to think, Will, that what will what will be inside their mind if we can get enough of this stuff inside their craniums that when they when they when the lesson finally does sink in, they're gonna they're gonna recall the lessons. They're going to recall the books. They're gonna say, Yeah, yeah I remember that guy. That son of a bitch, Quintus Curtius. I remember him. Yeah, I mean, he he did talk about this, and so you know, that's at least that's how it was with me. Like I, I would often not listen as a kid to things, but then when you did, when the lesson does sink in, you're like, wow, yeah, I remember so and so talked about this or that, and I, I I remember what that was like. So this is that's this my is hope. exact. I mean, and, and, and it's mine too. And this is the exact reason why I wanted to have this conversation because the subtitle of 37 is essays on life, wisdom, and masculinity. Now, right. as I'm, as I'm sure, you know, 
Um, there's no shortage of guidance about masculinity in our modern culture, particularly not on Twitter or social media. There's a lot of right. that, you know, names right. of all various, you know, sizes and scales and people talking about it. The subject is up across the world right now, right? Right. But I, I, f- I think what's missing, what I've observed is missing from the conversation is the notion of virtue, is the notion yeah. of moral character and where, and where does that come from? How can we lead young men, particularly in moral instruction, because they're not probably going to get it from social media, almost definitely not. They're probably not going to get it from any other form of media. They may not get it from their fathers, and they're not going to get it from their culture, but they still need it. And the notion of there being a difference between what is expedient and what is morally good, that simple distinction that Cicero explores is so vitally important. And, and, yeah. and this is why your approach to translation, I thought, was just as important because you can tell a young man or an older man or whoever, right, any man or woman, that if this is a treatise on the difference between what is expedient and what is morally good. Here, read it, and you can read it. It's readable. And yeah. you know, to your point about uh, Cicero's character coming through, like his constant attacks on Caesar throughout the entire thing, he never misses a chance to. But yeah, he just, I don't just I, has to <laughs> just, right. just twist the twist the knife. Yeah, right. I, I just when did it become? And this is more a rhetorical question, but it doesn't have to be. When did it become necessary for philosophers to be brains in a box? Like yeah. he was a he was a statesman. <sighs> he was an orator. Like his personality comes through. I want it to. Well, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. And I, I'm glad that you, like in 37 and from 37 and Pantheon Digest, I, it sounds like you picked up on my, maybe my sole focus. It seems to be on everything. It's about virtue and character, everything. Mm-hmm. Because this was a kind of a obsession that I, or a, re, or a realization that I came to from not just reading Cicero, but other other classical works, the historians, the playwrights, it seems that if it seems that that in the ancient world and even in in the medieval and renaissance era everything was about almost it was a critical part of a man's education was the training of character the training of yeah. virtue education and virtue training and virtue training and morals uh building i mean knowledge the idea that the mind is just this vessel to pour information into that's a modern that's a very recent uh, conception historically, the purpose of a gentleman's education was to make him a better man, to to train him yeah. in the martial virtues, the virtues of character, to uh, maybe lead, you know leadership. And as you know, there are some chapters and there are some essays in thirty seven about this. And I, yeah. as I became aware of this, as I got older and older, and I, I actually after I got out of the military, I realized that no one was being taught this. And then there was a real anger. I, I felt, honestly, there was a real, what drove me was a real sense of, of passion, born out of, um, honestly, anger. Uh, not, not in a negative way, but in a positive way. Like, we have got to do something. We have got to get this message out there because there's a concerted effort by some forces, I think, by some forces in society to strip these works of their true meaning, to try to denigrate and to try to um, invalidate or palliate the real message behind or the, 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 the substance of classical literature. They're imbued. They're imbued with the idea of, of virtue and character and how if you do the right thing, good things will happen. And if you pursue an evil path, 
bad things will happen. This is this is in the very nature of the works. And for them, for these professionals to downgrade this and to pretend it doesn't exist, to me is is a a sin of uh, inexcusable proportions. And I don't know why I, I don't know why it makes people some people so uncomfortable to talk about these things. And maybe it's because in our society today we somehow feel that pointing out virtue or talking about this somehow means you're condemning some people. Well, you know what? If that's how people want to, I, I never saw it that way. I never, uh, to me, I always felt, I think certain personalities, I found it uplifting. Like when I would read it, I, I found it intoxicating. I found it uh, edifying. I found it inspiring. And I wanted to impart that inspiration to others. I didn't feel like it, anything was accusatory or anyone was being singled out or this is this is the mentality of of uh of people that are warped i think to to, yes. to do that it's very it's it's very it's a very strange i i don't know i but i think it comes down to this this hesitation that that um we see in our society more and more to to put down boundaries and barriers and and say okay this is acceptable this is not acceptable this is the way to, to do things. This is not the way to do things. And it's got nothing to do with being mean to anyone. It's got nothing to do with uh, uh, singling anyone out. You know, uh, I, I don't know. I don't want to sidetrack the discussion too much here, but I, I, just feel, I just feel like um, I, I just feel like there's a real hesitancy that, uh, that uh, you know, people have been you know, you just, you just see this, you know, everywhere, this abdication of responsibility, I think, to, to speak the truth and to say what, say the way things really are, not the way we, uh, in, in a way that's expedient, you know, and mm. it's, it's, um, it's really hurting us, man, because it, it prevents, it prevents you from improving. It prevents, um, you know, it, institutions from getting better, from, from correcting errors and moving forward, you know, I and agree. I, I, I don't know, Will. Sorry, I don't, ahead. I don't know what the, we're going to have to. Um, it's going to have to change one way or the other. It's going to have to change, and I think it's probably going to change when uh, there's enough people that are getting homeschooled, that, or there there are enough people that are have been raised with this, um, uh, you know, philosophy and mentality that things start to things start to change. It, it's going to have to. Because you can't run a country and you can't run yourself by the seat of your pants. You've got to, you've got to answer the mail, you know? Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And, and I think I have, I have this idea um, while you were talking about society that we have these, these classical books of, of philosophy, the Greeks and the Romans, which people can't just read because they're in, they're in a, a, an ancient foreign language. And so it's the job of the translator to be able to, to be the bridge between these values of classical antiquity to modernity. And when you have a generation of translators who consciously or unconsciously, instead of building a bridge, decide to be a wall, right? That, that cuts us yeah. off from our history and to, and to step into that. I don't know that you, I don't, did you do it consciously where like, I'm going to make this readable because people need to be informed of these values or was it just instinctive? Well, it was. I guess it was a little bit of both. I, I felt. I felt will that I. I um. I felt deeply frustrated uh, when trying to, you know, because I, I. I 
you know, I've, you know, my, you know, myself, I, I, I only know Latin. I don't know Greek, but mm-hmm. I would read, uh, you know, a lot of different Latin classics in translation growing up. Um, and, you know, books that were originally written in Greek and, and you, you would look at them and you say, you know, you want to throw them down and say, I could do a better job than this. This is not, this is yeah. not, um, why are you, um, you're not giving this language the full resonance that it deserves. Yeah. You know, my job as the translator is to be that ferryman across the river sticks to transport the reader across that river from one side of the river to the other side of the river and make it somewhat of an enjoyable experience. <laughs> right. And, uh, uh, to use sort of a morbid analogy, but no, I, I guess I, I felt like, uh, the existing works out there were not, they, they were turning people off of the material. They, they were not yeah. giving it the resonance that it deserved. And so I just felt like, um, I could design a better can opener. Uh, that's really how it, it's like the guy who's in the kitchen and, you know, has been using the same can opener for, uh, his whole life. And all of a sudden he just flings it on the floor and says, you know, I could, I can design a better can opener. You know, I'm, I'm going to try to do this. And there are many examples of people doing this uh, in, in history, you know, people just saying, you know, I've, I'm, I've had it. I'm, I've had it with this business as usual. I'm going to throw my hat into the ring. And, um, and it turns out that, uh, that I was right, that I could do it and that it, it, it resonated and that, that it worked and uh, I'm confident. I know that anyone putting my translations, you know, right next to the original or next to any some other old competing translation, they're going to see the merit of it. And I have no doubt that they're going to to choose mine, frankly, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, I think I that the, I think objectively the product is better. I I, I believe in my product. You know, I wholeheartedly agree because I, I think you're doing two things at once. I think you're not only transporting the reader back to 80 BC Rome. I think you've also brought Cicero forward in time to 2023. Like yeah. I could feel his, the presence, like where are statesmen like that? Where are men of, of justice and righteousness and virtue and clarity and eloquence? And one of the best things about the book is that he'll go into these long dissertations about, you know, various gods or myths or stories or contemporaneous people. And then he'll just launch into like, several paragraphs of just pure virtuosity and eloquence out of nowhere, like yeah. riding these waves. Like this is a, this is a man that you brought forward in time to us. No, I, 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 I mean, I really, you know, it always feels good when you're a, I, I keep saying this, you know, when you're, when you do, when you're a, say you work on a painting or a sculpture or a book and someone gets, or a movie or a director, when someone gets what you're trying to get at, it's just a very nice yeah. It's a very nice feeling. So I appreciate you saying that, Will. Um, you're right. I, it, 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 you know, Cicero had a lifelong love of philosophy. He started studying it when he was very young. He had been to Greece. He learned Greek. Uh, his interest in philosophy was sincere and it was enduring and it stayed with him up until the very day he died. Uh, and I think, you know, he, um, this sincere interest, was what compelled him even in his declining years when he was basically a hunted man, this sincere interest was what kind of drove him to churn out these, these, these incredibly detailed treatises. I mean, obviously the guy, obviously he was a literary genius. There's no doubt that the fact that he could produce these books in such a short span of time, 
there's there's no question that he was a, a, a literary genius of some sort. Um, but the fact that he chose to take refuge in these books, you know, while he was being pursued by Mark Antony's uh, thugs, while he his career his political career had been marginalized, uh, while he saw himself as becoming irrelevant, uh, he could never really let go of the old republic. Um, he was not a perfect. Obviously, no no man is perfect, but he did have flaws. But I think, to yeah. me, that just adds in many ways to the to his human quality. I mean, we know he's the most human figure, maybe in the ancient world. That we, I mean, everything that he wrote survived. Well, not everything, but much of what he wrote survived. You know, his letters that were never really intended for for correspondence, uh, n- never intended for publication. Um. So, you know, he um. You know, when you ask, you know, where are such men now? I, I think, I think we do have men out there of of a similar caliber, but in times of wealth and indolence and ease and luxury, their worth does not really is not really allowed to be expressed. Only in times, only in moments of crisis, can such leaders really come to the fore, because. In a, in, when when things are good, when everything is um, going well, no one wants to hear about you know duty and obligation. I mean, they should obviously, but it's 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 <laughs> yeah. not it's not many not many people, and that's why you know um, you know you're you're never going to um, there's always going to be as you know we as I joke about on Twitter a lot, you're always going to see these scam warriors and you know con artists uh, talking about you know. Uh, cryptocurrency and getting getting rich quick schemes and and you can tell these guys and you can tell them hey look this is you're you're being led down a path of fraud and literal but they don't they're not going to listen until they suffer the pain until they until the lesson uh is is made clear to them but after that then they will remember you know then but so you know we if we can only you know, reach a few people, we, we will have done our job. I think that's really how I, I see it. I, and there are so many men that get taken in by these frauds. And what they learn from that is um, not Cicero's lesson, which is there's that what is morally, uh, that, that is wor- morally good is also expedient. And what is expedient, expedient is also morally good. Th- that, that you yeah. can't actually, you can't actually separate the two. If you do no. something that seems expedient, it is in by nature cannot be morally good. Right. And instead right. of learning the lesson of like, there's no moral virtue in expediency as such, instead they learn to, to take the expedient path. They learn the wrong lessons. Like, Oh, well, I can, if other guy is getting it over here, if he's getting rich quick, why shouldn't I? And they all get led down that path to become scammers themselves in various ways. They, and you're never going to, I mean, this, you know, I've been, yeah, in my job, you know, I do, I, I practice, uh, well, besides bankruptcy, we do criminal defense and, you know, um, you see it over and over and over again. I mean, they, they may, the, the path of expediency may work for some time. It may seem like it's working. And there are even some that appear to get away with it, but at the, in the long run, there's always a very, very severe price to be paid, whether it's with your soul your relationships with other people, your relationships with your family, 
uh, the toll it takes. I mean, it, it, there's a, and there's, I, I would even go so far, Willis, to say there's a physical degeneration that takes place. When you lead a corrupt life, when you lead a corrupt life, when you lead a, a, a degrading uh, life that is far from the path of, of virtue, when you, when you do that, you can see the physical deterioration of, and I mean that in a literal sense, as you can, the, 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 the skin becomes crinkly and the shoulders hunch over and you adopt a posture, this furtive crabbish posture. And this is, this is fate, or I, the ancients would say, this is fate's way of extracting its toll from your life force. That's what this is. I mean, in modernly in modern religions, we say, well, this is divine. It's the same thing. They're saying the same thing, but in different ways. But it's true. There, there, is, a, there, is, a, um, there is a direct connection, I think, between the deterioration of the body uh, through, not through just disease, but I mean, like, in, in, for many people, when the physical decomposition of the body and moral corruption i think there's a there's unexplored uh, this you know the people that allow themselves to become just uh just morbidly obese or they don't um they don't behave like good citizens or good family members or good spouses or good husbands or wives or brothers or sisters or whatever there's a price to be paid for this you know and you can tell them you can tell people and maybe you know, a certain percentage will get it. Some will just say, oh, well, they're just, you're just being a square. That doesn't, yeah, that's old fashioned and nobody, you know, and then, but then they find out and then they yeah. find out and they find out that there's a, the, and we see the price you see in the news every, almost every month, every week, there's some, oh, I remember. Oh, okay. Well, you know, you thought that was the way to go. Well, now look at you now. Look at, look, look at where you are now. Look at, and you know, um, it's, um, but it's hard. I, I think the, one of the reasons, you know, Will, is it's, it's uh, the, the reason why it's such a hard sell is because there's nothing glamorous about it. There's nothing glamorous about being told about, I mean, to guys like, I mean, we, guys like us, people that we, I find reading about this, I find it inspiring. I mean, and I'm not because I am, I never, I certainly am not any more virtuous than anyone else. I only, claim to want to learn about it i only claim to be enthusiastic about it um i only the only difference is i believe that there is a normative standard out there that we should aspire to but there are some people who don't even think that there's a they think anything goes nothing matters everything's relative um it doesn't matter what you do you can just sort of get over on people you can scam you can abuse people you can scam you can lie you can cheat you can do all these things and there's going to be no, it's just, Hey, it's just on to the next, the next gig. And, um, I think some of this is personality driven. I think some of, some people are just born with an, an innate interest in these things. Um, but, uh, I guess the difference between, and, we, and getting back to kind of circling back to Cicero, he certainly was a flawed man. He certainly was not any more, uh, virtuous maybe than anybody else. But I think the difference is he at least tried. He tried. He at least mm-hmm. made an effort to cod- to codify, to put down on paper that there was this school of thought said this, 
you know, the Epicurean said this, the Aristotelian said this, the academic said this, this is what I believe. He at least thought that there was a standard to aspire to. And that, I would argue, that is what separated him from his contemporaries. And I think that's what really separates a good man because we're all, we're all mortal. We're all, um, we're all subject to the passions of the moment. We're all uh, equally, uh, you know, I'd say sinners in a way, if you want to use that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all equally susceptible to the slings and arrows of fortune. But I think what separates a man who, who tries is someone that at least recognizes that there is a standard, that there is a, um, there is something that we should aspire to. Because you, you have to give people something, Will. You have to give them a standard. What are you going to tell people? That, what are you going to say? You're, gonna, you're just going to say, oh, just go out and do whatever you want and nothing matters. Right. And what are you going to tell kids? What are you going to tell your students if you're a teacher? What are you going to tell your clients if you're a lawyer? What are you going to tell your men if you're a, a platoon commander? Or you're just going to say, oh, did you? no, you got to, you got to, there's got to be a, a standard. There's got to be some sort of, um, aspirational standard. I think that's what so many, and I think that's what maybe, maybe what you found attractive, what I found attractive to it was that here at least is something, here's a man that's going in 180 degrees different from modern society. He's telling us that, wait a minute, you got to do this. You got to do this. And, and, you know, they're, they're, you know, leading a bad life ends up a certain way and leading a good life ends up a certain way. And yes, virtue alone is sufficient for a happy life. And yes, it may be, you know, the, the old, the old wisdom is true that it absolutely is true. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I think men are, I think a certain care, a class of men are actually thirsty for moral education and virtue. And, yes. and what I found really powerful about Cicero is he's a pre-Christian philosopher. He was writing yes. in 80 BC and also on the back of the book, I didn't know this. This was the second book on duties was the second book yeah. ever printed after the That's Gutenberg right. Bible. That's right. How, how incredible right. is that? And I can see why. Be- because the medieval, because in those days, um, it, it, it's a manual. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. because I think, well, classical learning in the in the medieval slash early modern period was obviously much more pervasive than now. I mean, there was, I mean, yeah. we there 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 were not there were not a lot of books. I mean that that would I mean in some ways in some ways they were maybe better off than we are because there was less distractions. All you had was the great yeah. stuff. <laughs> there was there was only <laughs> right. good things. There was not. I mean, well, yeah. there were there was there. Were, I mean, look, there is some there are some writings of inferior quality in, in every age, but they let's put it this way: they knew what the good stuff was. Those mm-hmm. just, just like we talk about those church fathers, Jerome, Augustine, uh, Thomas Aquinas. There's a reason why everything that Cicero wrote was preserved. I mean, they knew what the good stuff was. Okay. They, they were not fools. They were not, they, they found him basically and just as inspiring as uh, any, uh, as anyone else. And they, I think uh, when, when the, the dawn of the advent of the age of printing, um, it was a perfect, I think it was a perfect selection. It it wasn't very long. Uh, It was, it it was, I've I've got a pocket version of on duties that someone, uh, a very, very, uh, generous reader gave me uh about five years ago that was printed in like the 1620s it's a pocket it's a it's a uh um it's a a bound copy of on duties published in amsterdam it's on my website lab i've got it on one of the pages picture of it and, and it fits in the fits right so it's, it's something that you could carry people would have carried it it would have been like the i don't know the uh 
a pocket novel or something and you maybe just whip it out and and uh read it in your in your leisure and this is what educated men did in those days mm-hmm. you know it's 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 incredible yeah you know? and I, I think that and i think the power of the of the book of the treaties is that you you read it and the the cell the truths in it are so self-evident to read the way that he expresses them and there's this embodiment there's this feeling behind the words that this is real this is sincere this is genuine and if you're looking for a source of morality that doesn't that isn't well that that was ultimately absorbed into christianity but that is pre-christian and so that isn't trying to assert morality independent of christianity right because a lot of a lot of guys are looking for virtue and they're finding it in christianity right now i'm i'm one of them but for some people, making the case for moral virtue from within a Christian framework is, can be a big ask for some men. And, and I get that, and that's, a, and that's a process. But what I loved about this book is like, okay, if you want to see some of the same ideas expressed in a very different but, uh, but complementary way, you can read On Duties, and you'll see many of the same core ideas expressed in a pre-Christian era you know, in a, in a way that, that, that you've made readable. And that's that's the gift in this in the same way Cicero gave this gift to his son. You've you've presented this gift that you've made this so readable for us. Yeah, well, th- thank you, Will, for saying that. And and uh, that reminds me that that's what, what the comment that you just made is one of the comments that I hear very often from readers who just send me emails or texts uh, on Twitter. They say, you know, I um, and you even see it in the, in the reviews on Amazon. Like people will say, "Boy, what I was shocked!" Like the, especially Tusculan disputations. They'll say, I, "What, what I was shocked me was just how much this just seems very much like the Bible. Like the lesson is exactly." Yeah. And and you know, you say to yourself, "Well, that that's exactly right because the lessons are timeless. Uh, they're true, and you know, before uh, you know, in the in the uh, the the, the pre Christian era, uh, this was the only way really to." impart these lessons of uh, morality and character and virtue. Uh, it had to be done through these philosophical schools. Mm-hmm. Religion in the ancient world uh, in the, in the pre-Christian era was, was very different than it, it, there was, fr- there was, there was many different cults and sects and um, not all of them. I mean, g- in general, they were very tolerant of each other, but there was no real sort of, kind of binding um, sort of overarching framework that could be applicable to the, the, to everything. I mean, I don't, I guess this is not the place to really get into a big discussion of uh, sure. monotheistic religions, but um, one of the, that was about as, as good as you're going to get uh, in for, for that era. I mean, that, there was really an attempt, like you said, to codify these principles and put things down in writing uh, in a way that could be understandable and digestible to the average person. And that, and that was what Cicero's audience was. He was not writing for professional philosophers in Athens. He was not writing for professional philosophers in, in Rome or the Near East or Alexandria, Egypt. He was writing for his fellow countrymen. In fact, he, you may remember, he, he thought this was going to be his biggest legacy, uh, was this this uh, project he had of, of sort of importing Greek philosoph- Greek philosophical ideas into Latin and Latinizing them. And I, I see myself as carrying that tradition on by, you know, taking his Latin and putting it into English and disseminating it um, for the uh, instruction of, of, of our peers who, who need it 
more than ever. I mean, we what, what, have we ever needed this more than now? All we have to do is look <laughs> around. Yeah. I mean, we're 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 drowning in in narcissism and corruption and and uh, moral corruption and uh, I mean, I, 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 I it's it's I'm just speechless. I mean, it's it's just it's all you have to do is is step out your front door and you, and you just find examples. I mean, even in my own lifetime, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 54. And even in my own uh, brief lifetime, I just seems seem uh, things seem to have, uh, I don't know, unwound at a startling rate, mm-hmm. you know, and it's you say to yourself, how, how, what happened? What, how, how did this happen? And the answer is because the people that were tasked with, with stopping with, with, with imposing a standard did not uphold the standards. The people that were tasked with being the gatekeepers of institutions did not stop things when they first started. And this is how it, this is how, uh, these things happen. You know, you accept one little thing and one little thing and one little thing. And before you know it, you know, you're living in, a um, a, a cesspool. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. you know. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but yeah, I think you get the. There's an incremental down downslope, um, and uh, it's just very unfortunate. It's very very unfortunate because we, it it shouldn't be this way. No, no but no. And, and maybe this is I mean, the price we have to pay. I mean, it it very well might be, but I, I think that there are, and, and you must know. In fact, I want to talk to you for a second just about this before we maybe dive into a little bit of the structure of the book and some of the things that Cicero talks about. But, you know, you have a significant presence on on Twitter. And I imagine that you must hear from thousands of young men per year, for month, for all I know, per month, you know, who are deprived of fathers, but who are still seeking moral virtue and who gravitate to you and the things that you write about in your work. You know, and, and, and so you must see this firsthand with the men who come to you, maybe some of the men that have you on their podcast, like they're looking for something, they're hungry for something that they've never received and they find it in your work and they find it in the things that you write about. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's true, Will. That's definitely true. And I, I, do, I do get a lot of younger guys that reach, and, and some older guys too that reach out yeah. uh, and they share there. And I, 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 I love hearing from them. I love hearing their experiences. I, I do my best. I mean, a lot of my podcasts, I try to answer questions. You may have noticed that some of my, a lot of my podcasts are in response to questions or, you know, just simple moral issues that are going to come up in, in life, in, in work, in life, in relationships, in family, things like, <laughs> things like that. So I try to be as responsive as, as I can because, again, because I enjoy doing it. Maybe it's just a, my personality. But also I feel like I, you know, I, I didn't have a brother <coughs> growing up. I had two sisters and I didn't really have anyone to kind of bounce these ideas off of, to share these things with. And I, you know, would have wanted someone to do it for me. I did want someone to do it. I didn't have, in those days, we didn't have an internet. In the 80s and 90s, there really was no internet. Well, there wasn't any internet at all. At all. The internet yeah. was the telephone. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, uh, but, you know, guys are, I mean, most of the guys that reach out, you know, deep, they, they kind of know a lot of them in many ways, they know the answers to the questions they ask. They just want to, they just want to be reassured. 
They just mm-hmm. want to reach out. They want a pat on the back. They want someone to say, you're doing a good job. They want someone to say, hang in there. They want you to yeah. say, and yeah, I know I can just feel it. Cause I've been, again, I, I've been, you know, I've, I, you know, I can, you can sense the way people write, the way they talk. I mean, there are some people that are genuinely baffled by things, but most of them, they just, they want to reach out and they just want, uh, they just want a kindred spirit to pat them on the back. And that's what I love about yeah. this experience, this writing avocation that I've taken on, I guess, in, in the past, uh, decade or so, um, it, you know, people are just like us, man. Every, nobody has all the answers. But I think they can tell if you're sincere, if you're trying. And I, I, I started out, when I started out, I, I said to myself, I'm never going to try to be something I'm not. I'm never going to portray myself as something I'm not. I'm never going to claim honors I did not earn. I'm never going to bullshit these guy, people. And uh, I'm going to you know, if I don't know something, I'm going to tell you I don't know it. But if, but if I do have an area of uh, experience or expertise, I'm going to share that. And I think people appreciate that. I think they can sense. I mean, people aren't stupid. They know if you're trying. They know if you're sincere. Um, you know, so I guess that that's always been my operative method, and I think it I think it works. And you know, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to. Uh, you know, uh, you know, be the go-to guy for selling foam rollers and PDF uh, books, but I don't want to be. That's not what I want. I don't yeah. want. Ha- I don't. I don't have any interest in that stuff. You know, I, I have no desire to to do any of that. You know, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with that too. Look, there are some. I, I will concede. I will say that. Look, everyone's got to find their own method. You know, there are some guys, and I've said this before in podcasts. I mean, there are some guys. That maybe they need, they need a um, a certain uh, motivator and a certain personality type to to motivate them. They need someone screaming at them and doing all this yeah. stuff. Maybe, maybe that look whatever gets you off the. My feeling is whatever gets you off the couch, whatever gets you your juices flowing, whatever gets you off the couch, whatever seems to work. You know, fine as long as long as you're not wasting your money, as long as you're not throwing your money away spending thousands or on these ridiculous seminars and courses and things that you don't need to do. Uh, you know, you know, I guess, you know, everyone's going to be a little bit different. Uh, but, um, I can only kind of tell you what I, what I think is right and what I think is, is appropriate. And, uh, um, I just try to say things as I speak the truth about what I see and, I hope it resonates, Will. Maybe it does with some, maybe it doesn't with others, but um, I'm young enough and dumb enough to keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> May we always be so. That's uh, right. I think, I think that's the thing that, uh, like when I first came across your Twitter account that, that came across was a very, um, was a, was a, a very contained sense of uh, moral outrage and a, and, a, and a calling to a higher standard. Right. There was a, a feeling yeah. in your content of, of like, I'm not okay with the way things are. And I know that as a, as a well read and learned man, I also need to offer the higher standard that men can aspire to. And it's right. that juxtaposition. It's not like 
outward expressions of rage and anger. Because I think that there is a very necessary form of anger towards the modern world. I, def- I define anger as a legitimate emotional response to a crossed boundary. Anger is how you know someone is crossing yeah. your boundary. So be sensitive to that. Now, that doesn't mean you have to react out in violence. So what is the proper response to anger is to say, here we can build a society that, that um, respects and encourages people to have boundaries and governments as well and businesses, et cetera. Yeah. And so to yeah. call men towards that higher standard, I think is that's, that's what I felt in what I was reading from your tweets and, and from your posts is, is calling men to that higher standard because we, we have to do better than this, right? That's what I always felt. Well, that, that was what, uh, I'm, again, I'm glad that that's what came across that, because that's exactly what my intention was. There was a, Wonderful. there certainly is an edge. There is a sort of a, uh, an acid uh, at times that really wells through in, in, in real anger sometimes. I have to control yeah. it. Uh, I have to maybe sometimes do a better job at controlling in the profanity. And that's, that's kind of comes with, comes with the territory just based some of the military background stuff. Uh, But, um, you know, I mean, some of it, uh, but you're right. There's a fine, but at the same time, you can't just, I've never liked the approach where you just have to, um, unrelenting negativity all the time. There, but some anger is good, and I think I think I agree with you that there's 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 been a concerted effort I think to try to um, indoctrinate men that anger is bad, all anger is bad. That you should always feel this sort of um, opium induced bliss, you know, as you're getting as as you see your society crumble. That you're supposed to just somehow walk around with this blissful smile on your face as people drag your principles through the mud and your in your history through the mud and we have to say we're not going to accept that we don't accept that that's not acceptable okay and it doesn't mean that you're a ranting lunatic but what it does mean is that you lay out a normative standard to aspire to and to have other people uh, aspire to it and you know, like you said for for some people that in itself is a revelation there are there are yeah. there are young guys out there that don't even know there is a standard they don't, they're not even aware that these things even exist they don't even know that virtue exists. They don't even know what the virtues are. They don't want to, you know, and it's not their fault. It's not their fault, Will. It's the fault of, again, the school system, the society for not taking the time to, to put this out there. They want you to get on the internet and to uh, sign up for this QR code and do this and become a, uh, uh, a an ultimate consumer. And they don't want you to know that any of these principles exist. Uh, but if you if you go down the road that they assign you to, you're going to end up a very miserable, very lost, and a very amputated man. Uh, mm. Amputated in the literal way. I mean, the, the essay I just every Saturday I put out a new essay. The one I just did today was about the um, the mutilation of uh, of responsibility. About talking about this epidemic in in the declining centuries of Rome, where young men would would cut off their to avoid military service, they they would cut off their their fingers. I mean, it's just Whoa. disgraceful. Yeah, I mean, how how prevalent it was is a matter of debate, but it certainly was prevalent enough to be commented on by some ancient writers. You can you can see, read it later on today when you take a look at it. But yeah. the point is that um, we have got to we have got to get it out there and make it stay out there that there is such a thing as virtue, that these things need to be studied. They need to be digested. They need to be ingested and they need to be grafted onto our personalities so that they can be made part of our lives. And, and again, we're never going to 
we're never going to reach the perfect man. We're never going to become the perfect. No one is. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a never it's ending. It's a never ending goal. But at least, well, if you at least recognize that there is something to that there is a a, a standard, then I think that's that's the goal. You know, mm-hmm. that's the goal. And I, and I think that's what a lot of men are chasing in their pursuit of fitness or their pursuit of fatherhood or their pursuit of financial success is that all these things are, are wonderful things in and of themselves. But I think what really drives so many men forward is this quest for virtue, which is a concept that I don't even know that they have the word embedded in their being. They're just looking for something, you know, like you go looking for the sunlight, like a flower looking for the sunlight. Well, where is it? And when they find yes. these sources of moral virtue and instruction, it, it wakes them up like, oh, there it is. That's the thing that I've been looking for all along. And then to confront the times in their life where they haven't been morally virtuous and they have chosen what's expedient instead, maybe consciously, maybe without knowing, can be very tough for men to encounter also. But we've all been cultivated in that way. That's a very good point because Cicero talks very frequently in his writings about what you just said. This, there is, an, there is an, a, um, almost an ingrained um, genetic they didn't have that word back then, but there is an ingrained, an inherent um, desire that all men have for virtue that that manifests itself even when we're young, when we're infants. This sort of it's almost equivalent to a a newborn animal grasping for the light or grasping for the 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 air. I mean, he makes these these analogies from nature, and this is really the same with with man, uh, with human beings, because we are creatures of reason. We're, we're creatures of, of rationality that were created in, in a divine image. And he uses in a divine, we were created in a divine image. This is what yeah. he says, not my words. This is, these are his words yep. that we were created by this, you know, divine image that we have an obligation to pursue virtue. We have an obligation to fulfill what is inherently in our genes. What is, what is a, a part of our, um, a, a part of our very being. And this is an idea that goes back even to Plato. Um, you know, much of Cicero's ideas were, I think, taken from Platonic, uh, which are, you know, if you want to even go back even further, were probably some of the most in, in, intoxicatingly inspiring ideas ever created by by man. But um, you know, they they really do. They do make you better. I even even thinking about these things, talking about them, reading about them, it makes you better. It yeah. just makes you a better person. Uh, but it's you know it it does take some concentration. It does take some interest, and you know uh, everyone is going to have to find their own path in their own way. And I I hope that um, they will find it sooner rather than later because. Uh, you pay a higher price as you get older. And if you don't learn these lessons at an early age, that's, that's really why I, I kind of wish a lot of these things were taught in high school, not even college. You have to start earlier because you can just save yourself so much pain and lost time. The world says masculinity is toxic. Everything the world says is backwards. That means masculinity is medicine. Everything the world tries to shame out of you is what you need to live a healthy, fulfilled, virtuous life as a man. 
but I said shame out of you. Everything you need is already within you because you can't get masculinity from the outside. You can't buy it in a PDF or watch it in a YouTube video. It doesn't work like that. Virtues cannot be purchased. They must be cultivated. To become a virtuous man takes dedication and effort, guidance and feedback, purpose and direction. No one can give you those things but you. Our fathers are supposed to train us up in virtue, our churches and culture too. But for those men who grow up with absent, abusive, or distant fathers, what then? For men who grow up in feminized churches, the situation gets worse. And don't get me started on culture. It can all seem hopeless, but it isn't. The Renaissance of Men is about the worldwide movement to redeem masculinity for a declining age. That's what everything I do is about, because that is my story. And now it can be your story too. My 12-week Renaissance mentorship is your chance to make all the values of the Renaissance real in your life, with guidance from a man who's lived it and the wisdom of dozens of conversations with other men who have too. But here's what makes this mentorship different from the other coaches, courses, and programs available on the internet. I don't want you to become a carbon copy of me. I want you to become the best version of you, expressing all the gifts that you've been blessed with. That takes conversation, care, and investment. Everything you've heard on this podcast. And that is why it's a mentorship. To learn more, visit renofmen.com mentorship. I'm very proud of this program. And for a new development, the Telegram group of current and former clients is taking shape, inspiring every man to accelerate his journey. Once again, visit renofmen.com mentorship to learn more and be a part of it. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Say more about that. That's one of the that's one of the themes that I push with men is that okay, you can live a certain way when you're a young man, but you know, if you're blessed enough, you will live to be an older man and you will look back and reflect on your life. And you will, you will have regrets because your value system will change and you will see things more clearly with more experience. And so making the right decisions for the right reasons when you're a younger man, even though it may, it's not necessarily expedient, you can take a shortcut. Sure, you can. But it always and almost inevitably leads to regret later on in life. But we have such a short time horizon, you know, our 30-second TikTok window of consciousness yeah. that we don't think on lifespans of like 80 years. Right, it's always on the next thing. We don't consider the long-term impacts of living out living outside of moral goodness, and hopefully, we discover that before it's too late. You know, and that and I think, yeah. but I think men are recognizing the accumulated weight of all this expediency in our society today. They're looking around like, okay, this can't be it. So, where to find virtue and you know, open right. the door for them? And just like you, you said something like the a lot of guys are there's. They're they're pursuing these activities in sort of this um, frantic quest to to seek something that they know is is out there is a is a grail a holy grail but they're not quite sure how to put words to it like you and you know there's nothing wrong with I'm, I, I think you know physical fitness is a great thing guys should do that you know physical fitness mm-hmm. and they, gaining financial independence is a good thing and getting a family is a good all these are good things but you get the sense that once you've checked that box, then, you know, you, a lot of them are left with, okay, well, 
that didn't quite. I mean, I like I liked the I liked the idea of of, of seizing on this road and and disciplining myself to achieve this goal. And I think that's I think a lot of the guys that that do that, you know, with financial independence, physical fitness, or uh, what you know, these job quests or family, they um, they're they're. I mean, men are creatures of discipline. They revel in the fact that they were able to achieve this goal through the, and they should be proud. It, they should be, those are great things. Those are worthwhile attributes. Those are worthwhile uh, goals to achieve. But it's not the only thing. There's something underneath that. There's some substratal um, force. There's some str- substratal current running underneath all of these things and that they know, that they instinctively know. They are instinctively aware of what they can't quite verbalize, and that is this pursuit of virtue, this pursuit of character, this pursuit of moral goodness. And this is the thread that binds them all together. This is it. This is the underpinnings of of everything. And, um, you know, it it means more to you as you get older. In some ways, I, I really think and again, not with everybody, but I really think you have to reach a certain threshold age to really appreciate this stuff because you don't have the perspective when you're when you're in your twenties or thirties. I mean, you some guys do, and even if they do, it's 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 a perspective that's sort of an academic or rote mechanical perspective. It's not in your soul. But when you when you're in your forties and fifties and you've seen this, you've seen these dramas play out over and over and over again with people's lives. You don't just know; you know. I mean, you don't just know with a lowercase k, you know with a capital K. Uh, but, but it's still good to, they still need to learn it when they're young because it's, it's getting it inside their, their brain cells when they're young is what's going to save them. That's what's going to save them, Will, uh, even though they don't have a deeply imbued knowledge, a seasoned knowledge that an older man might have. If you can get it in their heads, there's always going to be some voice so, the, so that when they're standing on the edge of that precipice, when they are perched on the edge of that moral conundrum, when they are trying to deal with that conflict of that ethical conflict between expediency and advantage, uh, expediency and moral goodness, there will be some voice in the back of their head. There'll be the old consul, you know, uh, you know, Marcus Tullius Cicero will be in the ba- in the back of their minds, wagging his finger at them. You know, badgering them, saying, "This is not what I taught you to do. This is not what I raised you to be. Don't you disgrace me." And if we can, if we can get that in their minds, then I think we will have achieved, in many ways, much of our goals. I agree. Paul, amen to that. Right, like yeah. the idea, and that's and that's what I think is is so great about on duties is it's very clear that this is Cicero trying to pass this very thing that you're talking about to his son. Like, yeah. listen to me, let me, while you're under the, under the tutelage of uh, Kratipus, I think is his name. While you're under the tutelage of this man, let me pass these to you. Please listen, please install this as your moral compass, yeah. right? And, and, and really embody this as my gift to you from father to son. Because right now in society today, there's like no guardrails for how men can or should live. There's no nothing at all. So men are left to their own internal moral compass. Maybe they don't have fa- families. Maybe they don't have fathers, right? Maybe the icons, you know, the idols that they follow on social media or regular media, they're devoid of moral compass as well. So there's no guardrails to society anymore. 
and men themselves don't have an internal moral compass. That gift is supposed to be passed from father to son. We don't have that anymore. So how do you, how do you give that to men? Because they, they need it when they're young so they don't drive off the cliff when they get older. No, you're, you're right, Will. And this is, this is the big problem. I mean, in, in the past, that function that you just talked about was accomplished in, in different institutions in society. It was accomplished through organized religion. I mean, pe- people were, yeah. you know, in, in um, you know, hundreds of years ago, people grew up in a profoundly, uh, in, in, in all parts of the world, like in the Middle East, the, the religion was much stronger there. In, in Europe, I mean, people grew up with Christianity as part of their education. So these moral lessons were sort of automatically grafted into the, 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 the educational system. Well, we yeah. don't really have that anymore. And not only do we not have it, there's a, there's a conscious attempt to try to purge. Um, and again, that's a, maybe a discussion for another day, but there's a constant, uh, I think, effort to try to remove these, um, these, these uh, very valid and necessary controls uh, so that men are just now uh, these anchors, I should say, that 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 were that really kept the ships uh, these anchors and keels that kept ships yeah. stable in motion and stable at at rest. That's what these that's what these institutions were for: the military, families, uh, clans, uh, traditions, uh, religious structures. All of these things, men in the past, men in past ages were aided with the uh, the assistance of all these institutions, which have declined. Let's face it, uh, for various reasons, there's, there's, some of them are technological, some of them are uh, lack of leadership, some of them are uh, deliberate sabotage. There are various reasons, maybe a combination of all of them. Yeah. Okay, so, so more than ever now, it, it's hard to find your way to this stuff on your own. I mean, I only, I wish I could tell you that I had some sort of magic m- treasure map that led... I may have been one of the one. I may have been the one in a million who somehow accidentally stumbled, uh, or maybe was led unconsciously, almost like a sleepwalker. I sometimes feel because I can't explain to you how I, I. I don't really know. It just sort of happened unconsciously. Maybe all I can think of was that there was some sort of. There must be something uh, embedded in my personality that just I, I would just automatically gravitated towards these things. And there, there are just some people that are just like that. That's a, I think just like some people have a musical proficiency with instruments. They have an ear for uh, composing music or an athletic ability or a uh, uh, maybe my was a, an, a, my ability was ability to detect these things and to. Uh, recognize their their worth regardless it's uh it's something that i'm very grateful that i stumbled on or came across and um you're right we we, most people cannot arrive at these things without help we've got to yeah uh and and you know you you've it's it's a it's a it's a constant it's a, a battle that you've got to be prepared to fight every day it's not something you just turn on as a spigot and then it's on and it's for the rest of your life you have to work at these things and you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have relapses. You're going to have problems. You know, we all have moral failings. No one, no one has more of them than I do. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm always uh, trying to improve myself. I always say, how could I have done this better? How could I have done that better? But I at least try to confess. 
I think you have to confess. You have to, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to speak the truth. You have to stop lying. Stop uh, trying to, uh, you know, represent things. Stop representing things as you wish them to be, and represent them as they were. Because if you can be honest, if you can start with a position of honesty, you can move forward to solve problems. And um, I, that, that's that's just how I see it, you know. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's I don't know. I, I feel uh, it, there is. You're right. There is a messianic. Uh, sometimes I, I sometimes I feel like a. <laughs> there is a a zeal that comes across a very zealous, uh, and I, I I don't know where it comes from, but I just feel like I there's you're right there is some anger. I feel like we've been we've been abandoned. I feel like we've been yep. fed lies. I feel like people's lives are getting destroyed or derailed by lies, and it it it, it makes one very angry. It really does. Uh, but then you have to kind of kind of rein it in and say, all right, chill out, man. You know. You got to, you know, you're not going to, you know, you're, you're not going to get a, get your point across by, by screaming and raging. You got to express things in a measured, intelligent way, make suggestions. And after that, you're going to have to let people, um, draw their own conclusions. It's up to them. I think as men, we have this innate desire to you know, draw swords and go charging into battle. Like it's kind of woven yeah. into us into our creation, but, and, and there's the desire to do that, you know, like the charge of the Rohirrim and the Lord of the Rings. Like we all want, want yeah. to do that. So just let me at him. Right. But the, yeah. but the battle is around us all around us all the time, every day, almost through every channel by design, you know, again, through social media or our own innate vices and our own pursuit of virtue. So there's really no one direction we can draw swords and charge in. And that's no, very frustrating because, because that's the one thing when I we challenge it. Yeah, that's the, especially I've noticed from talking to the younger guys. That's that's one of the things that really I think frustrates them the most. There's no tangible enemy that you can really go after. There's really no. I mean, there is in some ways. I mean, you can you can talk about this name or that name or this, but there it's it's part of a whole system, and that's why I think yeah. you know you've got to if if you want to do something you know, tangible, you've got to lead by example. You've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to educate yourself. You've got to lead by example, and you've got to try to convince other like-minded individuals of the value of your, um, you know, of your position. And, you know, beyond that, there's just, you, you have to kind of wait and see and and look for, look for ways to, to, to change, you know, look for ways to change things in your own local area. You know, just, mm-hmm. I think just what we're doing right now is, is, is I just, you know, connecting with like-minded individuals. You know, I know you now, this is the first time we've met, you know, I can see now that, you know, we share, we have all these things in common. Uh, that's, that's, that's a, an example of a, a very positive interaction. And I think we can replicate these types of interactions because I think there are a lot of guys out there that think exactly the same way we do, but yeah. they just don't have voices, you know? Yeah, this is the power of the podcast medium and why I think people really gravitate to- towards it right now because it gives them the chance to sit in the room on conversations that they would like to be having that they can't have with the immediate men in their environment. So at least they get to participate and feel like, okay, I'm, I'm not crazy for interest, being interested in this. I'm not crazy for being interested in virtue. I'm not crazy for wanting to go counter to the stream of society that's going off the cliff of expediency. Right. Moral goodness matters to me. Where can I find men like that? And if I can't find them, 
how can I at least feel like I'm in the room with them while they're talking about it? Right. That's right. I mean, I, dude, we're all, you know, that's, I, you know, I used to like talk shows growing up, but I, I there's none, not, I, there's, they don't talk yeah. about anything serious, but the only way to find subjects that are worthy of your attention are like on YouTube or podcasts or things like that. You just, I mean, television and the movies, it does, they don't really have it anymore. You know, there is no, there is, there are no intelligent discussions on in the mainstream media. I mean, some, you know, I mean, there, there's yeah. the occasional, you know, it's it's hit or miss. It's hit yeah. or miss, really. Something so. will break through. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that um, we're getting up against the, your time availability, but I do want to spend just a moment going into like the structure of on duties, the three books of it, Cicero's intention, where he was at in his life, and and sort of break it down for the men that might be. Hopefully, many of them interested in reading it at this point. Uh, do you want me to do that, or, or yeah, okay. yeah, let's do, like, okay, yeah. yeah, let's well, do the, it. The, yeah, the the uh, um, on duties. Um, the Latin title is uh, De Officiis, which is means like responsibility, duty. There's no, it's no accent that the, the English word office is from the same root. You know, you when you. Ha- occupy a certain office that that comes with it, it comes with that office responsibilities so th- this this uh this three book it's a it's a uh, a treatise in, in three books and when i say books i'm talking about the ancient book not which would be like a long a very long chapter by today's standards mm-hmm. a book was like a, a rolled scroll you know so it, it's composed of three books libri in latin and um the, the 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 books concern the first two books cover the subjects of you know what is um, what is moral goodness and then what is advantageousness or expediency. Expediency and advantageousness are the same thing, the same idea. This this idea that um, doing what is that that which is convenient and quick and um, uh, readily done not necessarily what's morally good. And then the last book talks about what do you do when those two things collide with each other? What, what, what should be a wise man's response when what is morally right, you know, what, what is morally right conflicts with advanta- expediency? What do you do uh, when that happens? And, and um, there are just many examples of that. You know, should you disclose... Let's say you're trying to buy. Say you're the seller of a house. Um, uh, the example. Uh, That's one of the examples I, if I remember right, and I think it's in the last book. Uh, I don't have the book in front of me, but it, remember when, when, he, when he sells a one one seller of a house is about ready to sell his property to someone else, and he doesn't disclose that the fishing grounds on the property are not as good as he represented or that he, that he that the buyer may have led to be. Well, yeah, that's great. You, do you disclose that? Do you do you just simply sell it to him and say, "Well, it's your problem. You deal with it," or do you or do you say, "Well, look, I need I need to conf- I need to let you know something, even though I may lose out on the price here, or I may I may uh, not gain as much money on this sale as I might otherwise. This is the right thing to do." Or let's say there's a famine on the Isle of Rhodes. Remember that one? Yep. And yep. I'm in charge of some grain ships, and I know that there's a whole fleet of vessels about ready to go there, and I get there first, and should I charge my grain, should I sell my grain at greatly inflated prices, or should I say, look, there's a whole bunch of stuff on its way here, I'm not going to gouge you for this stuff, 
Yeah. Uh, that's not a fair thing. I mean, you know, these things sound common sense now, uh, but in the days before uniform laws, commercial laws, in the days before, um, you know, frankly, in the days before a, 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 a common religion that imparted a sense of, see, we forget just how much a unifying religion, you know, gave us this idea of moral goodness. The, these things were not yeah. common knowledge back in the ancient. These, these in, right. if you, in fact, uh, some scholars have have commented, like if you read uh, Aesop's fables, they're full of uh, miscreants, uh, skullduggery, um, you know, animals getting over on the other. You know, the ethic there is who can scam the most. Ha ha! If you if you get over on this other animal, then you're the winner. That means you're a great. You know, the ethic is kick the guy when he's down, scam as much as you can scam. Um, don't look back. You know, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you know, the, these, these, um, the point is that a uniform idea of moral goodness was not exactly common knowledge. And yeah. we're getting back to that point. I feel like we've gone, I think we're living in an age now of, in an, in a very irreligious age in the sense that religion is not for most people, is not a controlling uh, factor in their lives. Now, again, that's not everyone. And again, that that varies greatly from place to place. But I think we can probably agree in modern Western societies that secularism commands the day. The the, the secular society, the the secular view is what has been adopted by, uh, and I I think to an extreme, by Mm -hmm. the modern West. You know, I, 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 I don't, I don't believe in theocracies, but at the same time, I do, I do have a very strong belief. And I think Cicero had, a, I know, I not think, I know that Cicero, I think a lot of the great minds of Western civilization had a very strong belief that, that, that organized religion served a very, very useful social purpose. It served a critical and vital need, not only in man's spiritual growth, but also in his moral education. Um, mm-hmm. It served a very useful function in, in imparting um, moral lessons through stories and and, and fables and um, uh, you know parables that you find, say, in like the New Testament and things like that. I mean, these 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 things were done for a purpose. They were done for a purpose because we we can't live in a world where everyone is trying to screw everyone else. A world yeah. like that, where everyone is trying to scam, where everyone is out for themselves, where everyone is trying to cut each other's throat, that's not a world that works. Okay? That, that's why we don't do that. Okay? But this is the ethic of, you know, the dark side. That, that's, that's what people, that some people are trying to advocate that. Um, so this is why it's so important to have this is why it's so important to have a sense of structure i think this is i think this is what i think why on duties and and his his follow up or his related treatise on moral ends serves such a useful function because it gives you it gives the reader a moral structure without that's that's not does not have a religious uh, coding on it because there are some people that turns them off. You know, they find it yeah. for whatever reason, they can't get past that. Um, you know, I, I think that's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. But there are some people that for whatever reason, they just find that, you know, oppressive or uh, they, 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 they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't take the big picture. They don't see that, look, this is part of a, a, uh, a natural need in man's development. 
I mean, organized religions have been around since the very first humanoids uh, scra- scratched paintings on walls. And they're going to, it's going to be, because this is part of human nature. We, 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 these are, this is part of, you know, um, I take a very rationalist view of, of, of religion and that's a, is, it's a, it's a, it's a part of, it's a comp- component, a critical component of the human condition, just like mm-hmm. war or, 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 uh, uh, the family. It's, 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 it's an inherent part of the human condition. I think we have to see it that way and accept it, uh, for, for that way and you can't build a society based on a bunch of robotic atomized organisms just colliding with each other out of self-interest it doesn't work mm-hmm. i yeah. mean you would think this would be self-evident but apparently it isn't <laughs> and there's yeah. always the guy out there that says well i don't need i don't i'm just i can learn everything on my own i don't need well maybe you are maybe you are but but, the, but the, the, most people are not going to respond to being told that life is a meaningless um, pantomime of atoms and molecules, and that the Earth is just an, uh, a cinder, uh, uh, a lump of matter orbiting meaninglessly in space. You're not gonna, you're not gonna win any friends by telling people that. Okay, you're not gonna, you know, you're not going to, you know, people don't. How are you going to console? And I've, I've again, I, you know, you, you see people around. There, there's a, there's a greater wisdom. Where you know you see an elderly person, how are you going to console them in their bereavements? How are you going to give their lives meaning, other than with the pageantry and the moral structure of an organized religious belief system? So I mean, um, I think we've strayed far from our subject here, but I think you 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 get the you, you get the point. I guess what, I, what I'm, I'm making an argument in, in in favor of the value of of religions. Of course, you know, you're always going to find abuses. I think no institution created by man is ever perfect. No institutions created by man has ever been flawless. You're you're going to find just as much cruelties and uh, injustices uh, and uh, obscurantism and uh, deception and lies and fraud with with religion than you you find with every other human activity. Mm -hmm. I'd be the first to admit that. You know, but there is. The, I think the net good outweighs the net bad. I think that I think we can honestly say that that the net good is outweighed. And I think anyone that that says otherwise, I think really uh, has not lived long enough and has not traveled enough to really see the breadth and the depth of the human experience. I, I, and it really comes down to that. How can anyone not be moved by some of the greatest artistic? Uh, Creations ever invented by man were done with the inspiration of uh, of, of uh, religious belief. Um, how how can anyone not be inspired by that? How can anyone not be moved by that? You'd almost have to be sub. You'd almost have to be a reptile to not be uh, to to stand beneath the Sistine Chapel and not be some not to feel some something. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's just me. I don't know. I don't know. No, but- I, I- in any and and I and I think that's why and I, but I think in many ways I think this is one of the attractions of Cicero because he feels modern. I think in many ways and and I've heard people say this I think what what many people find accessible about his writings is uh it's 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 divorced from it it doesn't have the you know the um it it kind of rises above all faiths it's it's neither it's neither Christian nor nor Muslim nor Judaic 
nor Hindu, nor any other major religion. It seems to be hovering in this historical netherworld <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that everyone can agree on. So in a sense, it's somewhat an advantage. In, in some ways, it's almost an advantage that, um, that he was writing at a period of time that's very re- far removed from our modern experience because there's no baggage there. No one, no one today who's reading uh, Cicero gets angry at the Aristotelians. No one reading Cicero is going to get irate about uh, Epicurus. Is going to is going to you know curse his name or throw a book across the room because someone said something good about Cleanthes or Xanthippus or um, any one <laughs> of the the major. <laughs> although yeah. that may have been true in Cicero's day, but we don't we don't get emotional anymore about Cleanthes or Xanthippus or or Posidonius. Um, and this is an advantage. This, I think, is one of the secret advantages, I think, in, in the values in Cicero's writings is that yeah. there's no baggage there. You see, yeah. because if you, if you were to put the same thing, and if it were written by some Jesuit or some, I don't know, um, some overtly religious figure you're always going to get people that are going to be somehow turned off or they're going to they're going to bring to the they're going to bring to the party a lot of baggage whether intended or unintended and that's unfortunate because i think a lot of these the the, the best uh schoolmen the medieval schoolmen the best clergymen the best uh religious rose above their sect to to i think if and this is true of all faiths uh you know whether it's uh, Islam or, or Christianity or, or Judaism, the, the best ones had had universally applicable messages. But most people are not going to take the time to really probe into all that stuff. And, and I think one of the advantages of Cicero is that again, it's there's no baggage there. There's no um, people are, are going to people are, are more likely to open the book with a unjaded, unjaundiced eye to, to use a. In 19th century expression, the the advantage of the unjaundiced eye, will, mm-hmm. is there. I agree. So that's the mm-hmm. those are the three books of to get back. Those are the three books of on duties. Uh, that's the, the the major thesis of the book is to describe these these uh, characteristics and what to do when you have a conflict. And in amongst all that, he fills in the uh, he uses a wealth of examples uh, from Roman history. Quotations from uh, uh, Latin poetry and uh, Latin literature, and his own contemporary experience, and so he weaves all this together to form something that I think is uniquely his own. And there's, a, I think, there's a reason why this is one of the most, uh, probably one of the most influential books uh, that, uh, up until recent years, has never been read. I mean, I, I, I count it a very, I'm very satisfied to know that. I contributed in some small way to disseminate these uh, works that uh, I think have lain on the shelves for for too long. For too long. I think the the work is a profound gift for exactly the reasons that you described. That if you were trying to make a case for moral good, goodness over expediency to somebody from a Christian perspective, and you state it from an overtly Christian perspective, they might be you know, temp- tempted to just dismiss it simply because it's an overtly Christian perspective. Yes. So it's like, okay, okay, let's set that aside. Now here's On Duty from Cicero, 
pre-Christian philosopher saying the exact same thing exact and same reasoning thing. his way through to it. Now try to argue with this. Yes. And again, like you say, you can't throw it across Xanthippus. Like he references Diogenes. <laughs> I'm, I'm offended. Like, you I'm can't so, argue I'm, with I can't, Epicurus really gets under my skin. You know, yeah, I, can't I could just him, strangle yeah. him. <laughs> my dad how was did, an Epicurean. How dare he do that? You know, Zeno exactly. the Stoic. I'm just so dis- I'm just so disgusted with Zeno the Stoic. I have to go to a for a walk now. I'm so upset. <laughs> <laughs> triggered, super triggered. I'm, I'm so triggered by Zeno the Stoic, right, dude? <laughs> exactly. uh, you know, I mean, it's. I'm sure at one time it may have been true. You know, I mean, but you know, what are you going to do? But um, yeah. Anyway, well, this, it was a great discussion, Will. I really enjoyed it, honestly, and uh, I hope you'll uh, have me back someday. Um, but uh, let me know when you release this so I can, you know, be able to see it as well. I assume you're oh, going to tweet it out. You, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Any idea when it's going to be, like, next week or sometime? Next, what, next week. Okay, okay. Next week. Yeah, actually, in just, in, just in time for my birthday, which is, which is uh, uh, providential. May I ask just one more, que- just sure, one more sure. question? Okay. So uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about your Twitter account is your appreciation for fine handguns. I enjoy how, so can you just talk a little bit about that? You talk about the Beretta, you had a great photo of the movie Heat and just talk a bit about that real quick. Yeah. You know, man, I, um, yeah, I, I just, I just like weapons. I mean, I, uh, I've always, ever since I was a kid, I was always, uh, and you know, I, the funny thing is I grew up in Massachusetts, so we, we never, I never had guns like around my house growing up. Uh, but I always, always attracted to them. So I guess that was, you know, uh, when I when I joined the Marine Corps, that was one of the the um, I guess loves that I could pursue. You know, I, I always you know shot like, expert and rifle and pistol and um, you know so uh, I don't know in, in recent years. But again, even after I got out, I was never really a gun collector. I never really put much effort into it. But for some reason, over the past five years, I, I've gotten more and more into it. You know, I um, uh, I, I don't have a I don't really have a substantial compared with a lot of guys. I have a few pistols and I've got a few Berettas. I've got a few other things. Uh, but the ones I do have, I, I do love. And, um, I just, Berettas, uh, I just have a real affinity for them, I guess, because I used, you know, the M nine Beretta, uh, for many years, it was a service pistol in the nineties. Uh, no longer is, but it's, it's, uh, when you're trained on something and you grow up with it, when you grow with it, it becomes very, there's a real fun. I've heard a lot of the old timers with the 45, it's the same way, you know, the M1911. Uh, and, but I just love the, the, the lines of, of Beretta, how they, how they make their guns. I, I own a few of them. I've got the Beretta, I've got the Beretta M9, obviously I've got the M9A3. I've got the Beretta Tomcat, which is a little pocket 32. I've got the Beretta PX4 Storm. Uh, I'd like to get another one. There's another one I got my eye on maybe in the years ahead, but they're just so well-made and they're so aesthetically, I mean, the Italians just make, you know, they just, everything they do, they just do with such style. It just has that aesthetic. um, I don't know. I just, I just like, and plus I also think, Will, I think it's important for every man to be proficient with the, with the use of weapons. I, I, I think it's important uh, for a man to to be well acquainted with weapons, to be able to use them, to appreciate them, I think it's I think it's one of your duties as as a citizen to bear arms. I really do believe that. I don't know what state you live in. You live in Texas, right? Or is it? I'm in Arizona. Arizona. Okay. All right. Well, I know you guys are a 
or uh, the, the firearms laws are very are similar to Kansas. I live in Kansas. Constitutional live, carry. Yeah, it's a constitutional carry state. I mean, you can get a. I mean, I would also encourage guys to get a concealed carry permit just in case you need to travel yeah. from one state to another, just so you can make use of the reciprocity there. Um, also, I think it, it, again, the more of these things that you can acquire, the more seriously you'll you'll take the matter yourself. You know. So I just think it's important. I think it's important to be well-trained in weapons. I think it's important to be uh, uh, proficient in their use. I, I just think that you should uh, have the highest regard for them. <laughs> One of the reasons I was so excited for this conversation is the ability to you know, go between moral philosophy and religion and expediency and firearms and all the things that, all the things that well, create a well-rounded lot of fun. man. You know, the firearms, they're just yeah. a lot of fun, man. You know, I, um, one of the big, I, mean, I, I belong to a local range here, but I, I do wish that we had more outdoor rain in, in the metropolitan areas it's kind of hard to uh, probably you guys have a better access I don't, I don't know if you live in a city or a rural environment but um uh, yeah it, it's it, I, I wish if i ever had an opportunity to buy property in the countryside it would be nice to do that just to have the ability to just to shoot on your own property like in a controlled it's outdoors is just better you know you can um i don't know you can just kind of experience things better um i don't know it just seems to when you're in a range it's fine but it's still you know you're kind of you got these four walls and the sounds reverberate off the walls and uh it's better than nothing but it's just fun to shoot you know it's fun to just you know it's a it's a it's a fun thing it's a fun activity to do you know it's a practice way to practice your your steadiness of hand your your coordination of eye your discipline your ability to not flinch it recoil, and some of these guns, man, are powerful. I mean, you know, if you ever, if you've ever shot a forty-four Magnum before, I mean, I don't own one, but I have a friend who has one. And hell, a few weeks back, he, I'd never fired a, um, a Model Twenty Nine, a Smith and Wesson. You know, the the actual forty-four Magnum that you see in, uh, you know, the Dirty Harry gun. Dirty Harry, yeah. He, a friend of mine, he got it from his father, who bought it in the seventies. I guess there was a, there was the, the 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 gun was like wildly popular in the seventies, obviously, and. Uh, he, and I, I fired it for, man, it was, it was, you, you, you feel it. I mean, you definitely know, (laughs) you know what it's, you know what, uh, and you say to yourself, man, I just don't know, you know, if, if this is, you know, after about 20 rounds or so, is, is this really something you want to, you know, continue doing? But yeah, it's, it's, uh, the point is, it's just fun. Everything from the smaller calibers, the 22s. All the way to the forty-four magnums. It's just, it's just fun, you know. It's just a fun activity um, that has uh, that has value. I think it needs to be nothing more than that. That's right. Well, thank you so uh, much for all right, well, uh, your well, time thank today, you, man. Yeah, it's great conversation. Keep the morale up. Keep keep crunching, as we say on Twitter. Keep the <laughs> keep the fire stoked. Keep crunching and. Um, you know, let's, uh, yeah, just, just give me a little heads up when you, when you get this out so I can retweet it and share the, share the, the joy. Will do. When, where would you like to send men to learn more about you and what you do? Uh, well, my website, uh, is, uh, qcurtius.com. That's Q C U R T I U S.com. And if you go there, you can see uh, links to all my books and you can kind of go from there. You can see everything from there, the Twitter account, you know, um, everything, podcasts, everything is there. So fantastic. Check it out. Fantastic. Will do. Thanks for, thanks for, uh, 
being a fantastic 100th episode guest. I, I'm All genuinely right. appreciative. Well, thank you, Will. Keep the morale up, and uh, we'll talk soon, man. Hi, everyone. Thanks for sticking around after the interview for this little private discussion about the future of the Renaissance of Men podcast. First of all, I just want to say thank you for joining me for my 100th episode. This was a big milestone for me, and I put a lot of thought into choosing the right guest, and I'm very happy with how this came out because I think it's really setting the stage for the future of where I want to take the podcast. I've also been very happy to see the way the word virtue, particularly with the term virtue pill, shout out Mike Pantile, has really taken off on Instagram. And to see people really embodying it, enjoying it, posting it in their stories, people send me screenshots of some of their DMs where people are using the term. It's really heartening to me of what I think people are looking for in this discussion about masculinity. So I also want to say thank you for listening to my little opening war cry. And it really is a war cry. The reason why I decided to write that is because I've spent enough time in the masculinity space to discover that many men in it aren't who they say they are. And it breaks my heart to say that. However, that's just the truth. Now, a good way to tell if a man or woman for that matter in the space is not who they say they are is if they're unable to be honest about their faults. If a man is unable to be honest about his faults, and by the way, my only fault is that I work too hard, is not a fault. That's not called being honest about your faults. So if a man is unable to do that, he's probably not who he says he is, and he's play-acting a character. And now, look, that's fine. But ultimately, that's going to end up doing more harm than good. And there are plenty of examples of this, of people who are pretending to be unquestionable. You're not allowed to ask me questions. If you ask me a question, you're a cuck or a simp or a loser or a brokey or whatever. That's a really bad sign of a man who probably isn't who he says he is. But men who are willing to be honest about their failings and recover from them and redeem them are the men who model the sets of virtues that we need going forward because they're real 360-degree men. They're not characters. They're not caricatures. And the entire point of the renaissance of men is that we're getting back to the best of masculinity from all of time, not this thin sliver of performative masculinity. Maybe that served a purpose for a time, but I think now it's over. And I think now things have reached a crisis point where people are genuinely thirsting for authentic masculinity. And I know words like authentic and holistic and all of that are massively overused to the point where we can't even hear the words anymore. That's why I like the term virtuous masculinity. First of all, because virtue is unassailable. You can't argue with virtue, really. You can't say virtue doesn't exist. And as Quintus Curtis said, some people react to virtue because they feel it's an accusation of vice. And the way around that is to say, no, every person has their unique constellation of virtues. You can look at probably almost anyone, even someone who's woke, and point out the virtues that they have. And so what that does is it calls forth the best of us onto the playing field of virtue rather than arguing if masculinity is good or bad or not because it's an amoral force. Instead, when you say virtuous masculinity, you make virtue the focus. I don't think there's anyone out there that can really argue that virtue is a bad thing or that virtue is exclusive. In fact, virtue includes everybody. And so the goal is to get everyone to begin to appreciate the virtues in each other and the virtues in themselves that they have the opportunity to cultivate. It's transcendent and it's personal at the same time. So to see people swallowing the virtue pill 
to see that idea really catching fire in people's imaginations has been deeply inspiring to me. And it's what I intended for this episode to feed into. And so on that note, I would really like to encourage everyone to go pick up a copy of On Duties by Cicero, Quintus Curtius' translation. It will really introduce you to the concept of virtue in action. Now, the important thing about the translation is that Cicero was writing in the pre-Christian era. He wasn't writing as a response to Christianity. Christianity didn't really exist yet. But he lays out a system of morality that I think any Christian would look at and absolutely agree with. And because it's pre-Christian, he's not rebelling against anything. He's just validating what Christianity already teaches. And to see all that laid out in a way that Cicero isn't even aware of is a very powerful way of ingesting these values and looking in the mirror and seeing them reflected in yourself. Once again, Quintus Curtius' translation is incredibly readable. It's enjoyable to read. And he provides lots of footnotes that helps contextualize some of the names and places. So he really put in the legwork to help readers understand the argument that Cicero is making. I also want to draw your attention to the story of Regulus that shows up in the back half of the book, particularly in book three. It's the story of a Roman general who's captured by an opposing army and sent back to Rome to negotiate for a prisoner exchange. Now, I don't want to spoil that for you, or if I get another opportunity to talk to Quintus Curtius, I would love to talk to him about the story regarding Regulus, because I think it's very important for pointing towards this idea of a transcendent morality. And I think that's something that all the Christians who listen to this podcast can relate to, is the recognition that Christianity points to a morality that's etched into the foundations of reality, that's embedded in our conscience, and then that's written in a book so that there can be no mistake. So if morality is objective, non-negotiable, as deterministic as gravity, then other great thinkers should be able to discover it. And that's what I think you'll see when reading Cicero, is the same moral concepts outlined in Christianity discovered by a man 80 years prior and expressed in such a beautiful, moving, and powerful way. So once again, I really encourage you to pick up the book and to start moving into the direction of exploring what virtue looks like in your life and your personal life, not necessarily as a concept, although certainly you can explore that, but definitely what it looks like for you. What virtues are you, listener, strongest in? What virtues would you like to cultivate? What is the ideal version of yourself embodying all the virtues that are important to you? And I do mean embodying. It's not enough to play act at a virtue. You have to embody it. You have to become it. You have to glow with virtue because I do believe that that happens. And the best way to go about doing that is to read books from men who have thought deeply about virtue and on duties is one of those books. So I promised a little discussion about the future of the Renaissance of men. And I'm actually really excited about this because what I'm going to start doing is episodes called Will's Notes, which will be a bit like this. There'll be discussions of values or ideas or concepts, stuff that I'm coming up with all the time, and just expressing them to you, the audience. For example, I'd like to do an episode next week about the notion of cults of personality, because these ideas of cults of personality, it really drives the whole men's movement. These silos of men who embody specific archetypes and the men who feed money into them and get hits of masculinity back in response. That's a cult of personality. Now, it's certainly not limited to the masculinity space. It happens in celebrity culture, and it happens in so many different ways. So going forward, to bring it back to the point, I'm going to be doing episodes called Will's Notes, where I'll talk about ideas like this and others similar to it. Those will probably happen on YouTube and also on my audio podcast as well. But I'll probably do 
is I'll record YouTube videos and then share the audio here for people who listen to the podcast. Now, this won't interrupt my regular interview schedule for the most part. I have pretty much a full schedule leading into March at this point with some guests I'm very excited about. It'll just augment the existing flow. And that's one of the reasons why I decided I was going to shorten my intros so that I could take these thoughts and I could put them into a format that can be heard and discussed and shared more widely than tacked on to the front end of a four-hour podcast or whatever. And so I'm actually very excited about that because I think really I know I have important things to say. And so many of you have let me know how much you value my perspective and opinion. So it's time for me to begin sharing that. I wanted to do it sooner, but I wanted to make sure this was my 100th episode instead of my 101st episode. So look for some of those episodes to be starting soon into February and into March, sort of like verbal improvisational essays on a theme where we get to talk through some of the ideas that I would really like to see begin driving the renaissance of men as we transition from the era of fitness, personal finance, and anti-feminism into fatherhood, family, and faith, which is where the dialogue is really going. And undergirding all of that is morality, and the context that envelops morality is virtue. So those are the subjects that I like to begin talking about. You've probably already heard the shift in my intro, home for in-depth discussions about virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. That's very, very intentional. I'd also like to extend an invitation to my listeners. I may occasionally do question and answer episodes, sort of like an ask me anything. And you can send questions anytime to info at renofmen.com. So if there's ever a question you'd like to hear me address in the podcast, just shoot it to me at info at renofmen.com, put subject line AMA question in there, and maybe I'll do a podcast where I answer a few of the top questions sent by my listeners. Because I'd like this to be more of a dialogue and less of a one-way conversation. So thank you for participating in this dialogue with me. Thank you for being part of this podcast. Thank you for being one of my listeners. Thank you for listening this far. And I'm really looking forward to the next 100 episodes of this podcast. Have a great day and God bless. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.